the power of your word. I pray that you would um, allow your word to transform how we think and how we view you. And I pray that you'll just use the scriptures this morning to encourage each of us here. In your name, amen. Well, I have some Christian one-liners, too, I want to share with you. Uh, one person said, I don't know why some people change churches. What difference does it make when, uh, which one you stay home from? You know, that's <laughs> true for a lot of people. <clears throat> and this one really is uh, fitting with what we're talking about today. Some minds are like concrete, thoroughly mixed up, and permanently set. So I hope that that is not you and that <clears throat> you are open to hear uh, the truth from God's word that maybe are things you haven't been exposed to before. How many times our conversations uh, focus on the speedy moral decline of our culture today? We're often taken aback by the violence and the mistreatment of people to people, along with the moral pollution that has really become the norm for our society. <clears throat> As Paul continues his teaching from chapter 1, Going into chapter 2, John Stott says this, he exposes the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. Paul, while making a striking contrast by what man is by our very nature and then what he can become by the grace of God. So as we begin our study of chapter 2, we need to realize, as you well know, there's no chapter divisions in the original manuscript of God's word. So when verse uh, 1 starts of, with and, you know, obviously it's going back, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, telling us to refer back to what he just said. And what did he just talk about in chapter 1? He had just talked about the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him as head over everything, including the church. Immediately then, Paul goes on to say that all are dead in sins. And it is this very same power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that brings spiritual life to dead souls. In the first 10 verses of this chapter, Paul presents what a believer is before they come to faith in Christ, what they are in the present as a believer, and what they will be in the future. So he stresses the reality that we are all born dead in our sins. And we are living life, you know, according to the course of this world, the culture of our society, hostile to God and living a life of rebellion because we're living to please us. And these truths are critical to understand for our spiritual foundation of salvation. How many believers are never taught the truths of Ephesians 1 and 2? And they end up with a very man-centered thinking that believes they are saved because they figured this out on their own. They have some spiritual intuitive nature about them to be able to grasp the gospel where others can't. Well, salvation is only possible as clearly presented in our text here today because of God regenerating a heart, saving them by faith, which is a gift to all who believe. He has done this so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So um, I recall so many people giving testimonies through the years who say, well, I've always loved God. And that may be a feeling that people have about their understanding of God, but scripture would say otherwise. Paul wants us to understand how the power of God is demonstrated in our salvation. Chapter 1 was salvation from God's perspective, electing his own in eternity past. 
And chapter two is salvation from our perspective, seeing how he works his plan to save us in the present. There is no place for boasting because we learn that our salvation is all a work of God. So the power of God in our salvation, verses one through 10, we read in verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we are all children of wrath. <clears throat> Paul states that every person is born spiritually dead. In other words, they have no relationship with the living God. They are not aware of this fact because there is no spiritual life within them. Just as a person who has been pronounced dead is unable to respond to anything, so it is in the spiritual realm as people are spiritually dead and therefore they are unresponsive to God. I had the most unpleasant experience some years back picking up my mom uh, for a birthday party and a, a man came running out, her neighbor, screaming and screaming the name of, of the lady he was living with, Rosa, Rosa, screaming, screaming, falling on the ground, screaming, I ran over, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he just, he couldn't even talk. I ran in the house and Rosa was dead. She had hung herself. And it didn't matter how he was screaming her name. And we call 911 and they're saying, try to do CPR, but Rosa was long, long dead and unresponsive no matter how hard he screamed or what anyone did. And that is the condition we are all in spiritually. Romans 8, 7 tells us all of us are hostile to God and we oppose his holy standards. Romans 3 tells us there is not one person who is righteous. There is none who seek after God. As Paul says in verse 12 of our chapter today, having no hope and without God in the world. If a person is dead... They have no interest in spiritual truth. They do not understand the scriptures that the Holy Spirit has revealed. They have no interest in what gives God glory. The fact is that that, that is the condition of every single person born before their conversion experience, spiritually dead. We live in the realm of sin because we're born with a sin nature. Certainly there are kind of benevolent people who do generous things for others that are very good, but they still miss the mark. As Romans 3.23 states, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people fall short, no matter how hard they may try to live right. People are free only to make choices within the realm of the sinful state in which they live. And the proof is seen in the way people behave. We walk according to the world and the world's set of values the culture dictate, dictates to us. And who is behind that? Satan. People think they're free to do whatever it is they want to do, but they're only free to make choices within the realm of sin. <clears throat> the prince of the power of the air is Satan, and he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light and the truth of the gospel. Satan and his host of demons influence the spirit in all unbelievers who are spiritually dead, trying to keep them that way. They are invisible to us, but they are all around us, influencing people, influencing our culture. So right is wrong, left is right, up is down. I mean, it's crazy. And why is that? That's because the prince of the power of the air, <clears throat> convincing people to embrace ungodly beliefs and practices. And the result is continual disobedience to God. 
This is mankind, dead in sins, obeying what their culture may say to do and what's right, what's wrong, under the control of Satan and disobedient to God. In verse 3, Paul tells us that we too formally live this way and are children of wrath, just like all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are among the sons of disobedience. Everything we desired came from our fallen natures, and we didn't even know we were opposed to God. It wasn't just a bad environment or a poor education. It's our very self-centered nature, the core of who we are. Paul has taken these three verses to paint a very clear picture of what every person is without Christ. And only when we see this picture can we understand how desperate is our need for God to exert his power in our lives in order to bring us salvation. When Adam fell, every aspect of his mind, of his will, of his affections fell. Therefore, every person to ever be born and to live is spiritually dead in their sins. All indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So that even legitimate desires that, you know, we need turn into cravings that take control or turn into our idols, whether it's food, sleep, sex, material things, these things controlled by our flesh. And you add to this pride, anger, jealousy, and you see (laughs) the total helplessness and depravity of the sinful state in which we live. Sinners sin because they are sinners through and through. You know, if you've ever had a child, you don't have to teach them anything about sin. It's innate. It's in them. It's who they are. And God says that we are objects of his wrath because of our sins. So ladies, this is the state of every single person born, totally dead, hostile to God, even if they have good feelings about a God they think they know about. And should we die in this state, we would spend eternity separated from God paying the price for our own sin. So what can anyone do? That brings us to the most amazing next few verses, God's provision for man's sin problem. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What amazing verses. In our hopeless, helpless state, this biblical truth ought to cause us to fall down and worship and be in awe and amazed at such a great Savior. God has not left us in our helpless state. He has intervened bringing hope to the hopeless. The gospel message is revealed in the two words, but God. The reason God intervened is explained by telling us why he has done what he has done for us. God was moved to act because of his mercy. Mercy without limits or measure. We deserve punishment for our endless sins, but mercy has been granted because of his great love with which he loves us. He knows everything about you, Everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, every vile word and action, and all the ones you've forgotten that you did. And yet, he loves us. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So amazing. So what did such incredible love and mercy do for sinners like you and me? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. It is God who made us alive. He's the one to regenerate our heart so that we would be born again anew, 
by giving us a new nature. This new nature affects every area of a person's heart and their mind and their will. In a moment, a spiritually dead person comes to life. He is a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. If there is regeneration in a person that is God giving life, there will be a visible change in their life because now they have a new nature. There will be a desire to know God's word. There'll be a desire to obey God's word. You'll care. You'll care about his people, a desire to know his word. This is something God does. People respond to hearing the gospel message. They repent. They realize they're convicted about their sin. They believe Jesus' death was for them on the cross. And because God regenerates their heart uh, to be able to even hear this message and grasp it, dead people do not repent. Dead people do not believe, just as the lady I found physically dead before me. If you have come to faith in Jesus, it is because God has regenerated your heart because of his mercy and his love. It was not because you were smarter than others who don't get it, or as I said, you're more in tune with spiritual things. <clears throat> Rather, it is God who brought your dead heart to life in order for you to believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises believers from their spiritually dead condition. We could never do this on our own. How can we do anything then but worship and praise him for this salvation? As you saw last week, he elected you, he predestined you to adoption, he redeemed you by the death of Christ, and he makes you alive so that you can experience salvation. I hope you tell him how thankful you are every day. You know, no matter how rotten today may turn out to be <laughs> and what's coming at you the rest of the day, this is still true. You are still loved. You are still cherished. You were bought with a price. <clears throat> There's never been, though, any fruit of ch a changed life and changed desires in your life, then you may be one still living for self. And this great God loves you and calls you to turn from your sin and to trust him for salvation. He still puts responsibility. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't harden your heart if you hear him tugging at your heart right now. The way that God regenerates us, the way he gives us new life is by causing our nature to be joined to Christ. The moment of our salvation, we're not aware of this. We don't know all this is going on. But the moment of our salvation, God joined us together with Christ so that we become one with him at that moment of belief. So we're no longer spiritually dead. We're alive as we are joined to Christ. He's the vine. We're his branches. Paul said, we are raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. This means we no longer think just as one who lives in the world, and we only have a world perspective. We think as a citizen of heaven. There is a heavenly perspective now. There's still a struggle to not be conformed to this world that's always trying to squeeze us, right, back into its faulty thinking. But the desire of, our, of a believer is to, to renew our minds, set our mind on the things above where Christ is seated, just as Colossians 3 commands us to do. God's power has raised us up from the dead, joined us to Christ, given us the mind of Christ, so now we can think thoughts that are heavenly and God-honoring. Not only that, we are seated with him in heaven. <clears throat> when Jesus' work was finished at the cross and he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he sat down at the Father's right hand. It was complete. And since we are joined together with Jesus at the moment of salvation, we are also seated with him in the heavenly places. Not that we're experiencing that right now, 
<clears throat> the glories of heaven immediately. But what we do experience, that will be our future. But what we're experiencing right now is victory over our enemies, Satan, sin, the world, our own flesh. And because of the life of Christ in us, we can say no to sin. We have a choice. We didn't have a choice before. We can choose now to be obedient. We can choose to say no. We can choose to kill that sin, that attitude. This is all the result of the power of God because of his mercy and love for us. And why did he do all of this? Verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So for all eternity, his adopted children will be on display as showing his amazing kindness to us. The ultimate purpose of our salvation is that God is glorified. We are trophies of grace to be on display of his power to transform people. All of these amazing truths that we have looked at so far were given for believers that Paul's writing to to have an understanding of the theology of their salvation so they understand it. It is written for believers who already have embraced the gospel message. And Paul now goes on to explain the purpose for believers being saved from their sin. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of it's the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. These verses clarify how we actually became a believer. We were chosen in eternity past, and at a point in time, we experienced salvation by faith. There is no one who is uh, to get some type of credit, as I said before, because they believed the gospel. We are all saved by grace, and that is by God's unmerited favor. Salvation is totally undeserved. We have no merit, <laughs> nothing in us attractive that God would want to save us. In fact, we deserve eternal punishment for our sin and self-centeredness. But God says by grace, as that is undeserved favor, we are saved. <clears throat> and what is the meaning of the word saved? This is speaking of the truth that God has rescued us from death, eternal death, from the consequences of our sin, from his wrath, and from his judgment to come. We are saved by grace through faith. Paul has made it clear that we can take no credit in any way for our salvation. He explains even further uh, that our faith is a gift. To clarify this verse, for it is indeed by grace that you are saved through faith, and even this faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Many people think they're saved because they had enough faith in and of themselves to believe this message. That leads us back to verses 1 and 3 that just we just saw says we're all dead in our sins and dead people do not have faith to muster up if faith came from us there would be reason for boasting as one author put it so well we shall not be able to strut around in heaven like peacocks heaven will be filled with the exploits of christ and the praises of god <clears throat> there will indeed be display in heaven not self-display but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace and mercy and kindness through Jesus Christ. The only reason a person decides, and that's how it seems to us that I've decided to trust Christ, but the only reason a person decides to trust Christ for salvation is because God has given them life. He's quickened a dead heart and made it alive and given faith to believe. Saving faith comes to those who recognize they're sinners, that God is holy, 
that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, that we deserve his wrath. Saving faith then responds with repentance, a trust in the gospel message, turning from our sin, and confidence in what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. There is a submission and a surrender to him as Lord. And all this is possible because of the work he does in our hearts. And why has he done all this? And this is the real key, because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. <clears throat> it is clear that our works cannot save us. They cannot contribute to our being saved. But now he says that God, by his great power, created us for good works. He is creating a masterpiece with each of you who know him, a work of art. Having taken spiritually dead, self-centered, <laughs> pitiful individuals, made us alive and given life so that we would glorify him by doing works that please him. You understand that if you know Christ, there are good works of obedience he has prepared beforehand in eternity past for you to do today. Are you too busy with your self-focus and self-interest that you get off track of your calling to do his work today, whatever that may be. I mean, do you wake up and start the day? What is it, Lord? Is there someone? What is it you want me to do? I have these things I must accomplish. Where in that does God fit <laughs> in your day? If you know Christ, you were saved to be a new creation by your creator. One theologian put it this way. This word create is enough to stop the mouths and put away the cackling of such as boasts of having any merit. For when they say so, they presuppose that they are their own creators. Good works are not the means of salvation. They are the evidence of it. In eternity past, God designed and fashioned us to walk in the good works he prepared beforehand for us to do. You know, Satan's great deception through the centuries within Christendom has been to confuse and mix up these truths of the gospel so that people think, oh, no, it's by what I have to do to be saved. <clears throat> or it's my own faith that I have to uh, have and, and stick to it. But assurance of salvation doesn't come because you think you're trying to do your best in following Christ. Assurance comes because you have a biblical understanding of Ephesians 1 and 2. Such a successful deception by Satan to convince people that the way you're right with God is your own works or your own determination or your own church affiliation or your own sacrifice personally and all these things when in fact you remain dead in trespasses and, and sins. If God did not make us alive, we would still be dead. Having explained how those chosen before the foundation of the world in eternity past come to be changed right now in the present, Paul moves on to teach us that all who have been saved by faith are not only united with Christ, but we're united with each other. So all believers are one body. Multiple scriptures talk about this. There is great diversity in the body of Christ, whether it's language, race, uh, male, female, education, whatever. It's diverse believers from all over the world. And we are all one body. We are all members together of one body, all placed into the body of Christ. That is the baptism of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, rather, when we're placed into the body of Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit, placed into the body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. There certainly are no, uh, <clears throat> there are distinctions in our uh, where we've come from, or being a woman instead of a man, etc. But spiritually, we're all on the same status. We come to Christ. What was mind-bending for the Jew and Gentile alike back when Paul penned this letter is that each believer was a member of each other, same family, 
a brother and a sister. That, that's, that was really stunning. The remaining verses of this chapter then address the subject. Because Gentiles were once far off. And I, I don't know if there's any Jewish people here, but I think the majority here are Gentile. <clears throat> so this is our ancestry.com. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Not only have believers been joined to Christ and united with him at salvation, but now all believers are the same family. He saves us as individuals, Jews and Gentiles, dead in trespasses and sins, gives spiritual lives and makes us a family. <clears throat> Gentiles, one time alienated from God, they didn't know anything about the Jewish Messiah coming. They didn't have any hope. They didn't know about the law of Moses and God's standards of holiness. They were pagans worshiping false gods, living in fear of those false gods. Paul then reminds Gentile believers of their past, as I said, without hope in this world. They didn't have the word of God like the Jewish people. And as I said, they worshiped false deities and lived life in despair. And as I said, for most of us in the room, this, this is our, where our ancestors are coming from. But God has given us hope and forgiveness of sins because of a Jewish Messiah. One strangers to the covenants, but the shed blood of Christ changed all of that. He is our peace. He's the one who broke down that big barrier that used to be at the temple, the wall only Gentiles could come this far and no further. All gone, abolished by Jesus Christ. Jesus' death made it possible for that barrier between us and God to be abolished and the barrier between us and every other person on the planet. Verse 19 tells us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, are of God's household in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. This is an incredible result of salvation. <clears throat> I love what one theologian put, how he put it. Through the blood, the suffering flesh, the cross, and the death of Jesus Christ, aliens become citizens, strangers become family, Idolaters become the temple of the true God. Hopeless inherit promises of God. Those without Christ become one in Christ. Those far off are brought near, and the godless are reconciled to God. Only God could do that. <clears throat> My prayer for each of us here, ladies, is that we know Christ and that we be filled with such awe and gratitude. How can you do anything but worship and have a heart overwhelmed by what he has done if you know him. And also encourage you in the area of sanctification to take seriously growing in him. <clears throat> and growing in holiness. You are a masterpiece he's creating. You Think back where he took you from and who you are today. Think of what he's transformed you already. Don't give up on the transformation process, ladies. Keep dying to self. Keep struggling through. Keep battling your sin. And if you do not know him or you're not sure that you know him, or if you really don't see any evidence of a life devoted to him, <clears throat> and I encourage you, don't delay to call upon him. He has given you the opportunity to hear truth so that you will call upon him to save you from your sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. It is amazing that you would love us like this. Thank you for the work of quickening our lives, our hearts, our minds, waking up the dead, just like you rose, Jesus rose from the dead. That same power is what happens to each person who comes to you. 
as you regenerate a dead heart. I pray that we would live in light of these truths with a heart of gratitude, not self-centeredness, but worship and recognize that today you want it to use us, that for to do good works that you prepared beforehand for us to do today. May we be obedient and sensitive to your spirit's leading in our life and be faithful. Thank you for this great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.